Well, good morning. Glad to see you guys here. Uh, I am Chris Henson. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the members here at uh, C3. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our Summer in the Psalm series. We're going to be in Psalm 105 this morning. Uh, That's on page 503 in your Bible there on the row. So if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, you can grab the little black Bible there in your row. And if you don't want to use your phone or grab one on the... uh, Uh, The row there, you can certainly follow along with the words on the screen as we continue this morning. So, uh, just a little bit about uh, about me. So, I grew up with with, uh, two brothers. I have an older brother, Andy. He's about two and a half years older than me. I've got a little brother, Tim, uh, who's about three and a half years younger than me. And basically what that meant is when we weren't in school, we were doing one of a few different things. We were either playing baseball in the driveway... We were playing soccer in the yard or flag football in the yard, or we were finding all of the empty lots in our subdivision where they had massive piles of dirt and we were creating ramps that we could jump with our bikes, right? So that was life for me growing up. I mean, we were doing trick shots and bottle flips and stunts like way before Dude Perfect showed up on the scene. That was life. If you don't know what Dude Perfect is and you want to take 45 minutes of your afternoon that you'll never get back and satisfy your brain with really fun videos to watch, go home, look it up on YouTube, a little bit of cross-generational discipleship for you there, parents. Get some, get some Dude Perfect in your life. So um, when we had our uh, first baby, we found out the gender. I found out I was having a little girl. I was like, cool, that's, that's cool, that's great. I have literally no idea what this is going to look like at home. But that's cool. I'm down for it. And then we had her little sister. And then we had her little sister. And even the cat is a girl. So I'm totally outnumbered at home. There is zero testosterone in the house other than this guy. So there's a few things I've learned in my 10 years of being an all-girl dad. I want to share some of those with you. I think you'll find them insightful. Uh, Number one is everybody has emotions. But sometimes people have extra numbers on the dial that I didn't know existed. So that's number one. Second thing that I've learned about being a, uh, uh, an all-girl dad is that sometimes you just need to cry for no reason at all. But here's the kicker. You have to be able to discern when it's a no reason cry because if you point out that someone is no reason crying in the wrong way, it turns into no reason wailing and there's really no recovery from that. So you've really got to be careful. You've got to be real discerning. And then the third is singing all day long about whatever you're thinking or whatever you're feeling is an acceptable means of communication. So my mother-in-law used to joke. She'd say when, when, uh, when our girls were younger, they'd be like, your girls are going to think they grew up living in a musical. I mean, I felt like I lived in a musical, so, you know, why not them? So here's the deal. Nobody had to teach my girls to sing, Right? Nobody had to teach my girls to sing all the time. Just like when you turn music on, you don't have to teach a baby to start bouncing their legs or teaching a kid to dance. Just like when you make a silly face, you don't have to teach a kid to giggle and laugh. These are just instinctual, natural things that we do. And, and in fact, singing, especially for children, becomes a really unique way for kids to communicate and learn and remember and recall things. So let me give you an example of, of how you can know that that's true. I want you right now in your head to just recite the alphabet for me. Can you do that? Go ahead. How many of you are singing the alphabet song? Yeah, that's right. Okay. How many of you learned the 50 states by singing 50 Nifty United States in your choir class? That was my jam in third grade all day long, right? No one 
Uh, no one has to think hard before you can realize that song, especially when you're young, becomes an incredibly powerful tool to help you remember things. Final illustration for you with regard to that is uh, one of the, oh, I don't know, eight or ten different songs that Daniel Tiger has forever etched into our family culture, right? If you have to go potty, stop and do what? Go right away. Flush and wash and be on your way. Grown-ups, come back, Right? you got to try new foods because they might taste good. What does a friend want to do? A friend just wants to play with you. That's it, right? Um, you, you preschool mamas are, are sitting here going like, oh, my goodness, like this is the one place a week where I can escape PBS Kids and Little Baby Bum, and you got to take us to the land and make-believe and sing ABCs. Like, come on, man. So point is, song becomes an incredibly impactful way, all joking aside, to remember important things. And it's not just evident by, by what most of us can relate to as we look at our family or we think about our own childhood growing up or I look at my own family, but it's something that is woven throughout the Bible as one of the primary ways that God's people recall and remember the things that he's told them. And, and for me, that's kind of hard to imagine because, right, like if I want to recall something or if I want to learn something, you know, what, what do we do nowadays? You, you, Get out your phone and you search on, on Google. You pull up your computer. You read a book. You can write things down. I mean, we just, we have the ability to translate, access, gain information in so many unique ways. But it's not like the Israelites in the Old Testament, if they were like, what, what do I need to know about God? How do I think about God in a right way? It's not like they could go, oh, well, here's my notepad. Let me just pull it out and write this down. Or they could go knock on the, I guess you can't knock on the door to a tent. You could just, hey out here. All right, you couldn't go over to your neighbor's tent and be like, hey, can I borrow your copy of the law that you clearly have in a, you know, bound and easy to transport format? You couldn't just walk down the street and pick up a copy of the Ten Commandments and find out everything you needed to know. And so often in the Old Testament, people used song to recall and remember. You actually see this uh, in a really unique way starting in, um, in Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, you don't have to turn there. Um, God's people are at the end of the Exodus wandering. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God says, Moses, here's the deal. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to take all of this law that I've given you, and I need you to write it down. And here's what's going to happen. Every seven years, gather the people together at the Feast of Booths, and we're going to read this whole law together in the hearing of everybody so that they can understand what it is that the Lord our God has commanded us. Well, that's great, but what do you do if you're a Jew during the seven years in between when it's read? How on earth do you remember what it is that God has told you to do? Well, God had an answer for that. He looked at Moses and he said, after you finish writing this down, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write a song, and you're going to teach it to the people so that when they forget everything else that's written in this book, they'll remember the song. And the song will remind them what I've taught them. Why do that? Because songs stick with us. Songs help us remember. Moses was in front of the people and he said, God has given us this song to remember so that generations from now, this song will confront you and remind you as a witness before God of the things that he has commanded you to do. And when trouble befalls you, why that's happened. But it also held out hope for him that song at the end of Deuteronomy. Because it said, not only will this song confront you as a witness when you turn your backs and disobey, 
but it will remind you that God is a God who offers hope and restoration to those who seek him. And so as we've been looking at the Psalms this summer, we've seen this dynamic as well, right? A lot of the Psalms that we've studied, a lot of the Psalms that we look at, recall the things that God has done for his people and implores them to live in response to that. And that's the the understanding I want us to bring to Psalm 105 this morning because this Psalm is basically just going to recount everything that God did for his people from the time of Abraham until they're settled in the promised land. But the reason it does that is this. It's not so that we can have a history lesson. It's so that people would remember the character of God and see what he's done for his people when they were apt to forget everything else. They could sit back and they could look from beginning to end at what God had done for his people so that in the dark moments, in the quiet moments, in the seasons of forgetfulness, they could remember the song and they could say, this is what my God has done for us. And it would prompt them to worship. And so as we look at it today, I want you, I want you to put yourself in their shoes for just a minute because it's, it's hard for us, again, having access to this, being able to think and research and you know, do all the rest of this stuff to imagine what it would be like to live in a world where you earnestly wanted to know God but had few resources to help you remember. And so I want you to think about being an Israelite who wakes up in the morning and goes out into your field while the air is still cool and your children are still sleeping and look out over your fields and I want you to think about your home in which you live. I want you to think about being back in in, in that time where you know that, that the nations around you war constantly and people are constantly running over territories and invading lands and killing people and subjecting them to slavery and looking at your home and going, we have peace and security. We have no needs that are not being met. We have no fear of what is in front of us because God has given us protection. I want you to imagine what it's like working day in and day out, somewhat in isolation from other people and and what it's like to sit back in the midst of all of that and Try to be a follower of God. I want you to imagine the questions that they might ask as they look out over the countryside and do things that I think many of us, these questions really haven't changed over the last two millennia, but ask the same kind of questions that we would. Like, why do we worship God? Why do we worship God? Why do I give my life for him instead of following all of these other things that everyone around me says will give me satisfaction and joy? Why do I follow him? Why do I worship him? Why do I stop every weekend to focus on him and rest? Why do I take the first part of what I've worked so hard to earn and produce and gladly give it to him? How come I get to be here in in this land and enjoy these good things and have this home and have this family and have this security? Why, Why do I have that? What's the purpose behind that? Why do I pray and talk to God? Why does, why does any of this matter? And I want you to view singing the psalm as a response to help you remember why you remain invested in loving and pursuing God by remembering what he's done. So take a look at verse 1 with me. We'll start looking at Psalm 105 this morning. 
It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the works, the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, and to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So in the first six verses of this psalm, we see this encouragement, right? This is what we're supposed to do. That you would see and think about God and your response would be, I'm going to glory in God. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to remember him. I'm going to tell others about the amazing things that he's done. That's the life of worship and adoration and joy that we as believers in God have toward him. But what I want to draw your attention toward is verses 7 through 11 because that's the why. That's the reason. What is it about the character of God and what he's done that causes us to respond in that way? The answer is what you see in verse 8. And it's this. It says, because the Lord our God remembers his covenant forever. For a thousand generations. What does that mean? It's simple, and this is the the main idea that we are going to camp out on for the entirety of this morning, and it's this. It means God keeps his promises. It's simple as that. God keeps his promises. God is always going to do what he says he's going to do. God is always going to do what he says he's going to do. You can count on him to be consistent to his character, his will, his intentions. He's not a cosmic genie that throws temper tantrums and and fits and decides to spite people when they disobey. He doesn't work off a karma system. He isn't sitting in heaven, sitting back and going, Chris, you've screwed up five times over here and you've done three good things, so guess what? You don't get my blessings. You get anger and punishment and criticism and correction. That's not how God works. God is faithful to his character. He does what he says he's going to do. He is not affected by your inability to keep his commandments because he is above it all. So he can look at you in the midst of the greatest season of your life and the darkest part of your life and say, I am consistent. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. You will find peace. You will find hope. You will find a God that seeks and restores his people. God keeps his promises. He's constant. The things that he declares, he brings them to pass. And so specifically here in Psalm 105, this covenant that we're talking about, that the covenant that God has kept, that he remembers for thousands of generations, that is the, the reason, the backbone behind worship, 
So this covenant is the, the covenant that God has given to, to Abraham. And that's what you see here in verses 9 through 11 where it says, To you I will give you the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And God kept that covenant, right? We have an ability to look back on that and go, God kept that. Look at, at verse 44. So the, kind of the bookends of this, this passage, you see that, that he talks about this, this covenant given to Abraham, and at the end of the psalm it says, He gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. And so God makes promises, and he fulfills them. He says things. He keeps them. He declares what is to happen, and those things come to pass. But it's not as simple as that, because if you just look at that, you go, okay, that's really great. God said something. It came to happen. That's great. I understand that. Thanks. Mind blown. You didn't have to go to seminary to learn that. Appreciate it. But seriously, right? Now, what I want us to do is zoom in And I want us to look at the covenant that God made with Abraham because I think it provides context for the rest of the psalm that we're going to look at today. And so if you would, go ahead and flip back to Genesis 15 with me. And uh, while you're doing that, um, I'm going to go ahead and just set up a little bit of context for you um, by going further back to uh, to Genesis 12. So in Genesis 12, um, God shows up to uh, Abraham and he, he says, look, Abraham, here's the deal. I want to uh, be your God and for you to be my people. And here's what I'm going to do. I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give that to you as an inheritance, you and your generations after you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all of the families of earth are going to be blessed through you. And so Abraham believes and he trusts God and he follows and he leaves the land where he was living and he goes to Canaan with his family. And when you get to Genesis 15... Abraham has now been in the land, and he has seen the things that God promised him would come true. And he and his wife Sarah uh, are, are there, and, and he looks at, uh, Abraham looks at God and, and says, how do I know these other things are going to be true? What is, what's the, what is the covenant that you're making with me? How can I be sure of it? And that's what we see here in, uh, in Genesis 15, God confirming the covenant he made with Abraham, starting in verse 13. What it says is this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So when we look back at this psalm, Psalm 105, what we see is that God not only kept his covenant to give Abraham the land, but everything in between, verses 11 and 44, we see begin to make sense as well. You see, from long ago, God called and set apart the children of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. He gave them these great promises, but seeing them come to fruition would take time. 
there would be a series and a sequence of events, some of which were uncomfortable and difficult and troublesome. But through them all, God would bring about what he promised he would do. And that's what we see here in the chronicling of events here in Psalm 105. Because they're the timeline of what God has done to be faithful to remember his covenant. And we're not going to read through all of these, but I want to just give you a quick bird's eye view highlight of, of what it is that's being discussed here in Psalm 105. So in verses 12 through 15, what happens is, is the psalmist begins to say, okay, God, you made this covenant, so, so what has it looked like over time? It says, while Abram was living in the land of Canaan, God protected his people. He kept them from harm. Though there were kings and countries and people around them would have, which would have overrun and destroyed them, God put a, a barrier between them and his people and said, you may not touch this people. They're mine. He protected them. He cared for them. He made sure that they experienced no harm. And then in verses 16 through 20, uh, 22, you see the story of Joseph, who's the great grandson of Abraham, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And when he arrived in Egypt as a slave, was put in prison. But because of the great wisdom and power that God gave him, he rose to a place of prominence at the right hand of Pharaoh and stored away grain to prepare the people for seasons of scarcity. So that in verses 23 and 24, when Israel came to Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, the Lord was able to make his people very fruitful. Why? Because the brother of Israel, the, the brothers of Israel had Joseph there waiting to provide for them and to care for them and to put them in a position to have shelter and to thrive. And then in verses 25 through 36, you see that God, uh, his word, his proclamation to Abraham that they would live in a land not their own and then they would be oppressed by a people begins to happen. The story of the Egyptians beginning to oppress and hate and fight against the people of God comes to pass just as God said it would. But then you see how God raises up Moses and performs these signs and wonders and amazing plagues to rescue and redeem his people and to punish Egypt until they were happy to see Israel leave. And in verses 37 and 38, you see that God brought his people out of Egypt with great treasures and gold, just like he said they would. And then you have verses 39 through 41. You have the story of God providing for his people in the wilderness as they wandered to the promised land, giving them cloud to cover them by, night, or by day and fire to light the way by night and giving them quail to eat and manna and bread from heaven, providing water for them to drink from the rock. Why? Why go through all of those details? Because verse 42, he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. Because he remembered his covenant with Abraham and the one to whom he made it. And then in verses 43 through 45, we see what we discussed earlier. God overpowering the peoples of the land so that his people, the people of Israel, could settle down in the land that they were promised and enjoy peace and security and homes and fields that others toiled for, but that they came to possess. What do we just see? God remembers his covenant. 
what did we see? God remembers his covenant. God keeps his promises. God says, I will do this, and then he brings it to pass. It's as simple as that. God says, I will do this. I will give you this land. I will make you my people. I will bless the nations through you. But know this. Know this. Your people will wander for centuries. And they will be oppressed. But I will liberate them. And I will bring them back to this place. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And he brings it to pass just like he said it would. All of the things God said to Abraham would take place did. And so imagine with me, if you're that Israelite that we talked about earlier and you're walking out into your field in the morning and you're asking yourself, why do I worship God? Why do I do this week in and week out? Why do I get the kids out of the house in the morning and throw them in the minivan, half fed, half dressed, and tell them, stop fighting! We don't want people to know that we don't really like each other some mornings because we got to get here and put on our Jesus face, right? Like, why do we do this over and over and over again? And imagine singing this psalm and going, the character and the goodness and the long-suffering faithfulness of God. That's why we do it. Because you think to yourself, for the entirety of our history as a people, God has always done what he said he was going to do. See how he's done it? He's protected us when we were weak. He's provided for us when we needed help. He's fought against our enemies. He's overthrown our oppressors. He's met our needs, and he's given us what we need to live every single day. He's put us in a position where we don't want. He's placed us here that we might keep his statutes and observe his law. Not so we can live in constant fear as failures or as though our disobedience is going to get a a cosmic slap on the wrist all the time, but he's given us his word and given us his commands to follow so that we might experience life and goodness and proximity to the one thing in the entire universe that is designed to satisfy our souls. And he promised that he would be our God. He promised that he would be like a father to us, to love us and care for us. He promised that he would make us a light to the nations. That's why we do this. That's why we remember. As we're singing the song, we're recalling, oh yeah, that's why. Because in this moment, and maybe in this moment of your life, you're looking at this narrow window of time this past week, this past day, and you're going, I don't know where God is, but it sure doesn't feel like he's here. And you can zoom out and you can go, no, he's always been there. He's always in charge. He always knows what's going on. He's always faithful. He will never, never not keep his promises to us. So that's why. That's why I'm getting up today and battling the depression or battling the sadness, or fighting for my marriage, or seeking to love my kids better, or going to work even though I don't like it, and doing the best job that I can, because it's not about those things. It's ultimately about him. And he informs everything else. God always keeps his promises. That's why. So what does that mean for us? 
I don't know where you're at today, but I imagine some of you, as we ask those kinds of questions, we imagine what the Israelite living out in that field might think. You ask yourself the same question. Why, why do I do this anymore? What's the point of this? I, I don't understand. Some of you may be coasting right now and just going through the motions. Some of you may be crushing your Jesus game right now. If so, awesome. That's great. Whatever the case, I believe God wants you to hear today one simple thing, and it's this. Don't give up the pursuit. Don't give up the pursuit. Don't give up the pursuit. Right? God's worth it. See the character of God. See the way that he fulfills his promises to his people year in and year out. See that he protects and provides for his people. See that he fights against our enemies and he defeats what oppresses us. See that he meets our needs and puts us in a position where we don't want. See that he gives you an inheritance in Jesus that is not earned and that you did not work for, but is freely yours because of his grace and his mercy. People will fail you. Leadership will fail you. The church will fail you. But God does not give up. He will not fail you. His promises are true. He remembers the words that he commands for thousands of generations. He doesn't tell you one thing and do another. He's constant. And he's given you great and dear promises as a believer that you can count on when everything else fails. Even if you've run far away, he keeps his promises because his heart is for his people. He's given us promises like Philippians 1.6 where he says, He who started a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's one of my favorite promises because it reminds me God's not finished with me yet. He's not. He's not done with me. And look at me. If you're here this morning and that thought has popped into your head, listen this morning. God's not done with you. He started a work in you that he was pleased to start when he gave you his Holy Spirit and adopted you as a son or daughter. And if you're breathing this morning, he's not done with you. There is work to be done. You're not broken goods. You're not a defective project. You're not someone that he's just waiting to hit room temperature so he can bring you home because he's done with you. God is working in you and he is not done. So wake up in the morning and put on your pants and look in the mirror and say, my God is good and he's not done with me. That promise is true because what does God do? He keeps his promises. He doesn't lie. He doesn't tell us one thing and do another. He keeps his word. Or Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. will never leave you or forsake you. In the darkest season of your soul, God will not leave you and he will not forsake you. He is always there. Or 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that God will provide a way out for us in our temptations when they become too hard to bear. Or John 10.28 saying that no one, no one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. Our salvation is secure. Our future is secure. Our hope is secure. Our identity in him is secure. There's nothing or no one or circumstance or thing that you can do that will ever change your position before King Jesus as an adopted son or daughter. Nothing. 
Or James 4, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Even if these things seem so far away, know that God is faithful to do what he says he will do. The psalm, Psalm 105, reminds us that God keeps his word for a thousand generations, and he will see what he says come to pass. You know, church, we have an exciting season in front of us as a church. As I'm speaking, I don't know how many of you have thought about this, but um, our new lead pastor, Seth, is standing up in the pulpit at his church, and he's giving his last sermon to his church family there. And starting tomorrow morning, he'll be here with us. That's very exciting. If you think that hiring a new lead pastor is going to solve all of our problems as a church, you're absolutely right. little self-deprecating humor there, right? Right, it's not. It would be so easy for us as a church to misplace our hope on him as he comes in, that he's going to grow us, he's going to fix our problems, he's going to reinvigorate our souls so that we want to serve and worship and give and proclaim. Can I just be honest with you? That's not his job. It's not. It's not his job. If you put that on him, he will disappoint you because that's not his job, right? His job is to point us to the one who can calm anxious hearts and give hope to the hopeless and embolden the weak and supply strength to those who need it. That's his job. Because his resources, Seth's, are limited, but your King Jesus has everything that you need everything that you need. All that your soul needs to find gladness and hope. All that your energy and enthusiasm needs to worship and serve and proclaim and make much of Jesus, God supplies those to you freely. His job is to remind us to go to him and find a God who loves us and gives those things freely. I think the greatest gift that we as a church family can give this man before he and his family show up here is that we would do what the psalmist did and remind ourselves just how good and faithful God has been to us through the years. How steadfast and how wonderful he is. How he has saved us from sin and brought us into a relationship with him through his son. How he satisfies our souls in the quietness of our homes in the morning while the kids are sleeping and the lights are low and we open up our Bibles and we read his word and we experience and find life. That in the quietness of those moments we find that our soul has what it needs to make it another day. How Jesus has brought life-giving people into our lives to wrap their arms around us and encourage us to press forward toward things that matter. How God has brought correction and encouragement into our lives. How he's spoken to us in the middle of dark seasons and storms and given us encouragement. How he's forgiven us when we faulted. How he's restored things that we've broken. That we would sit back and we would see the goodness and the faithfulness of God in all of those things. And that because of that, we would say we won't give up the pursuit. We will keep pressing forward. 
We're not going to back down because we're tired or give ourselves the freedom to coast spiritually, but we're going to press ahead in the strength that he provides in hopeful anticipation that God is still at work to restore marriages, to help us and our friends around us see and treasure Jesus, to live in authentic relationships with each other, to be hopeful, not because of a person who's showing up here to take on a new job tomorrow, but because of Jesus who has always been in charge of this church and known exactly what we needed. And listen, if, if you're one of the people who's here and you're tired or you're discouraged, take heart. It's okay. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to be discouraged. But as you find yourself there and you look at the road in front of you, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Church, it's okay to find rest for your soul. That's not you being lazy. That's not you being apathetic. It's okay to find rest for your soul. Go to the source of life and rest and peace if you find yourself there instead of away from him. There's such a temptation to say, I'm tired, my soul is heavy, I need a break. And if that's you today, your break is found by pursuing Jesus, not running from him. Go to him and find rest for your soul. Here's a final encouragement for you, and we're done this morning. See, the psalmist started the psalm by giving this loud, encouraging, brilliant proclamation to worship Jesus, to worship God, to tell others about him, to, to make much of him, to seek him, to remember him, to glory in him. And he was able to zoom out and say, the reason why I do that is because I can see how God has been faithful to me for generations upon generations upon generations. I think it's helpful for us, church, to do the same. And so after we do communion, we come back and we sing these songs during that time, or maybe this week as you go home today and you get ready for the start of the, the week, ask yourself the question, what are ways that you've seen God be faithful in your life? You may even want to write out some bullet points that help you trace and see over time the way that God has been faithful to you. Or how God has said certain things to be true in his word and you've seen them come to pass in your life. Maybe you've seen God uh, free you from addiction or he saved your marriage or he's been faithful to help you grow through the years or he's brought people into your life at opportune times or he's provided for needs out of nowhere. Whatever those things are, let them help your soul worship him more freely. Let them be a grace and a reminder to you to not give up the pursuit. And if you're looking at your life today and you're saying, man, I, don't, I honestly don't know if I can really point to a single time in my life where I've seen God at work. Maybe the work that he needs to do in your life begins today by you realizing and recognizing that you don't know him. At least you don't know him the way that it seems like you should know him or, or could know him. And if that's the case today, as you pray and as you think, I want you to remember that Jesus ultimately gave up his life for us, not so that we could become religious, not so that we could come to church, not so that we could modify our behavior to become better people. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could never live and died on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven and enjoy a relationship with God in heaven, both now and for eternity. 
And if they've never done that before or you have questions about that, please come and find myself or one of our leaders at the side of the room. We'd love to pray with you. We're not going to give you the hard sell. We're not going to push you to say things or do things or raise your hand. We simply want to encourage you that if God is working in your heart and speaking to you today, that you would listen and that you would take action and you would begin to understand what it looks like to listen to and obey King Jesus as he leads and guides you toward more of him. Let's pray. Lord, the end of this psalm, after all of these things had come to pass, ends with a simple phrase, praise the Lord. I feel like that's the right response when we have the opportunity to slow down for just a minute, think about how good you've been to us, how faithful you've been to us, and how you've cared for us. It should cause us to sit back for a minute and go, what else can I do? What else, what else can I say? You've been so good and so faithful. So I will give praise and adoration and worship back to you. So Lord, we want to do that now, both through taking communion and remembering Jesus who died on our behalf, but also through song, worshiping and remembering your goodness and your faithfulness to us. May we go into this week not discouraged, not without hope, but ready to continue the pursuit because you, King Jesus, have been faithful to us both now and you will continue to be faithful to us forevermore. Amen.